I took a picture of Kate Winslet in this film to a hairdresser to get her haircut. It happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had yeah. that Cameron Diaz haircut, actually. There we go. Yeah. I mentioned the holiday in my wedding speech. <laughs> Twice. I also mentioned the movie Cats. So it's yeah, not it's like... Just, yeah, it's, it's not a high Green assault. Green but... assault. <laughs> And welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Lauren Burke. And I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are back with our Kate Winslet holiday holiday special, which will serve as our best reads episode of the year. And we specify reads and not books, because here at Bonnets at Dawn, we don't care if it was, you know, an article or a poem or if it was published this year or 200 years ago or whether it's your first time reading it or your 50th time. We really just want to know what you've read and loved in 2021. Now, as per usual, we have a lot of recommendations to get through. So I am going to warm us up with a few articles, websites, and newsletters. First up, I'll recommend The Rambling. Now, many of our listeners are reading and or writing for The Rambling. But if you are unfamiliar, um, I just want to let you know that they publish short stories, essays, and poems on the long 18th century, something a lot of our listeners are interested in. And I really enjoyed The Sounds of the 18th Century by Elizabeth Waybright about the way music was used in the favorite Bridgerton and Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice. It was a really recent article, and it's it's really good. The Keats Shelley Association is also doing some really excellent work, and I loved their roundtable discussion on Autumn DeWild's Emma, which I have mentioned on the podcast before. I'm also going to give a shout out to Kaylee Donaldson. She has this really great newsletter called The Gossip Reading Club, which are sort of these like in-depth articles on, um, you know, celebrity journalism and culture and the latest issue is on Leonardo DiCaprio, which was really, really fantastic. And I'm pretty sure that I give Anne Helen Peterson a shout out on this episode every year, but I do really recommend subscribing to her Substack as well. So I love particularly when Peterson tackles celebrity scandal and culture, but this year she also uh, talked about economics, divorce, and burnout. And one piece that sat with me for a long time was entitled The Millennial Vernacular of Fat Phobia, which is all about the messages that we elder millennials were being fed about weight loss during our teens and young adulthood by, you know, Seventeen Magazine, Victoria's Secret, Delia's, the whole Abercrombie aesthetic, um, the Sweet Valley High twins, Bridget Jones, which we could have like an entire episode on Bridget Jones, honestly. We should have a whole episode on Bridget Jones. Oh my gosh. I think it would really, (laughs) it would send me back. (laughs) It would really send me places. Remember when she eats the Branston pickle straight from the jar? That's a, that's like a precursor to Kate Winslet gassing herself in the holiday. (laughs) That's the same joke, isn't it? Really? Oh God, it really is. Okay, speaking of the holiday and Kate Winslet, have I got a tangent for you. 
So Winslet is actually mentioned in Peterson's piece because the media was just relentlessly focused on her body in the early aughts. I remember all too well watching Titanic at a slumber party as a teen and the other girls fat shaming Winslet. And by extension, I felt like they were fat shaming me as someone who has always struggled with their weight and their own body image. And this was absolutely reinforced by what was written about her in the press. And, you know, here are just a few examples in case you're not sure what I'm talking about. So Joan Rivers said that, you know, if Kate Winslet had dropped a few pounds, the Titanic would have never sunk. James Cameron called her Kate weighs a lot. In 1998, Vogue UK famously profiled her but refused to give her the cover because she was too fat. And sidebar, that interview is so passive aggressive and like full of body shaming that I actually once took it into therapy for me. Now, Winslet herself has talked a lot about how she was bullied at school for her weight and told by casting directors that she would never be a leading lady and only play the fat best friend roles. And, you know, whenever she would try to speak out against her critics or casting directors or whoever, she was just labeled loud or rude, which, again, I find very relatable to relatable. Now, this was something I was thinking about a lot when we talked about Mayor of Easttown on our Sense and Sensibility episode earlier this year. Our relatable Kate discussion just had me revisiting a lot of her old roles and um I still think that Marianne might be my favorite Kate role because I just like the way that she's feeling her feelings all over that screen. But Mare might be my second favorite because it does feel like this meta F you to all of her critics whenever she eats pizza and burritos. So gotta love that. But Hannah, getting to the point, I do know that your favorite relatable Kate movie is The Holiday which we are going to get into today. So this week, we will be joined by friends of the show, Ariel Zebrak and Sarah Mesley, both write, teach literature, and are pop culture aficionados. Now, you might remember Sarah from our Blue Castle read-along at the start of the year, and Ariel and her Something's Gotta Give chat from our last episode of the Sex Scandal and Social Climbers series just a couple of weeks ago. It makes sense to bring these two back for this discussion as earlier this year, Ariel wrote a piece entitled The True Meaning of Christmas Movies and Sarah wrote a piece about Winslet and Mayor of Easttown called Mayor's Hair. Both are really great reads and you can find them on the Avidly website. So we are jumping into this interview with a discussion about what it is we find so pleasurable about the holiday. Well, it's amazing because it's such a piece of a moment. I I mean, I too, when I watched it, felt nostalgic for the time when it came out, even though I hadn't seen it at the time. But some of its gifts, I do feel like are eternal, such as the fantasy that every day you would have a gorgeous new white coat and you would have another one the next day, but not because you'd spilled, just because you had another one, right? Like the perfect gift of uh, ongoing fresh crisps, cozy whiteness. 
is to me it's it's like the um watching scandal where olivia pope is constantly mm. drinking white wine in all white and never spilling and that's like the total wish fulfillment for me also for me in like a slightly less romantic way it's about that i'm so bad at packing uh, mm-hmm. i like i feel like which coat like what if you're going to a conference let's say at a winter conference it's a very hard decision which coat to bring because yes. it has to be your only coat right and but so she was able to walk down a lane in stilettos with two like reasonably large suitcases, but they had like five or six coats in there somehow. Impossible. Just, it's like a packing fantasy for me. Like that would be my ideal packing yeah. dream that I have every coat I could desire at a remote cold location. <laughs> Myers is like all about fantasy, right? Like the interiors, like how does she keep that house clean? There's there has to be, she's not clean. (laughs) Right, and I do feel like the coats are the holidays equivalent of the kitchen in other movies Mm -hmm. because the kitchen is not as important in the holiday as it is in, for instance, um, Something's Gotta Give, which you folks were just talking about on that other episode. Um, or in Home Alone, the kitchen really matters. And I don't feel like the kitchen quite matters so much as, well, because Cameron Diaz, she leaves her house, so she has to take the coats with her. The coats are the right. transferable uh, sign of domestic luxury. But there is there is like this subplot that I only picked up on on further rewatching. Okay. It's like, it's like a wisp of a thing mm-hmm. that it's like Kate Winslet's character loves to cook. Oh, yeah. And she yeah. does have a freak moment when she gets in the house about the kitchen. Like the kitchen for her is a particular freak out moment when she's doing the whole tour of the house, which is performing our awe at the house where she's like, oh, my yeah. God, the bed. Oh, my God. Like there's mm-hmm. there's certain pauses where it's like the bed is huge yes. and the kitchen is huge. And then later that gets filled in because she's like, oh, I'll whip up a Hanukkah dinner like on the spot. I know how to make latkes, even though I'm like a British Christian woman. And that she like, she's, she makes Jack Black dinner like again on the spot. It's like she has like cooking magic. So I think the kitchen is important for her character. But I do feel like Ariel, one of the things that's so amazing about this movie is that obviously both Kate Winslet and Cameron Diaz are complete wish fulfillment and they are separate but related wish fulfillment. But the, there's all these ways that I really do think that the movie stages Kate Winslet as the more attainable felicity in some ways but also as the um and and it does that in a bunch of ways that she's not as blonde that she's not as thin that she's more service oriented um right more service oriented but so true and i feel like that continues to be the disturbing part of the movie that sarah and i talked about this last time we talked about this movie where it's like it's astonishing that Kate Winslet is in this role because as you've pointed out, the movie positions her as like the less hot person. Right. <laughs> when her, like the thesis of her body of work. And like, I think I mentioned, I recently rewatched Titanic with my son mm-hmm. and I forgot about how, when you first see Kate Winslet in Titanic, this is an incredible shot. It's like the shot is like, you are about to see a woman of such incomprehensible beauty, like, yeah. you're not going to be able to handle it it's like the slow pan up and she has the big hat and she turns so that they cast her in this movie where the thesis seems to be like she's less hot she has a worse house which also her house is amazingly adorable and like very goals worthy for anybody and yeah her life 
like she has the worst life. Yeah. Somehow. Right. And I feel like, um, I mean, one thing to, I was thinking, Ariel, while you were talking is that the pan and reveal of Kate Winslet's face in Titanic is similar to the pan and reveal of Cameron Diaz's bed and kitchen. Yeah. And mm -hmm. Like of like, you're going to see something of supreme luxury. Here it comes. <gasps> right. And then it opens before you. Um, uh, yeah. And that the holiday. I mean, what, I mean, so I talk about the holiday in Mare's hair uh, yeah. as this, like the way that it puts the appeal of white femininity on this kind of trajectory where it's always like up above you somewhere, even if you're Kate Winslet, it's mm -hmm. always above you. So it's too far to say that Kate Winslet is raced in the movie, despite the fact that um, she is darker and rounder and more service oriented. But the, it, I think that the holiday is about white raceness. So, I mean, she is raced, but it's all about the kind of the asymptotic slope of whiteness that Ariel writes about so beautifully in the Rich White People Fictions book, which is, it's just like, you can always climb that hill, but even if you're Kate Winslet, you can't get there. Mm -hmm. um, it's also about, I mean, I feel like the holiday more than anything else is about richness. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think in your hair studies work, you've pointed this out, but something I think about a lot is that a certain kind of blondness also signals a certain kind of wealth because anyone who's ever gotten their hair done yes. knows how very expensive it is to be a yes. black blonde. Mm -hmm. This is the part that I say that I'm really excited to get my hair done on Monday and give <laughs> hundreds of my hard dollars to maintain my washed out blonde look yes i've wanted to be blonde in my life and here people <laughs> have told me like it would be so expensive for you personally to be blonde mm -hmm. like it would break you you can't do it yeah <laughs> so yeah yeah I, I it's my regular encounter with the frisson of my own fascinations with uh that as asymptotic ideal and the the attention, so, I mean, this is something that we could talk about as well, depending on how tightly focused on Kate as holiday figure, Lauren, that mm -hmm. you would like this. But Lauren, or Ariel wrote a great essay this spring about the pleasure of watching Christmas movies, mm -hmm. which uh, I feel like she's a real trend center on this because there's been a lot of really good discussion. Tressie Cottom has been talking a lot about the Hallmark Christmas uh, cinema universe and evaluating all those things. It's a really good part of her thread. Mm -hmm. But... Um, yeah, the way that this ideal of femininity is wrapped up with the Christmas holiday itself is interesting. Christmas is obviously an opportunity for like great normativity, right? Mm -hmm. And so like a lot of, I mean, what I talk about in the essay is how um, it's always been funny to me as a Jewish person, but someone who's, you know, often celebrated Christmas because of partners and friends, families, of course, like if you live in America right now, you celebrate Christmas, mm -hmm. but, um, as a Jewish person, just seeing all these Christmas movies where the plot is like the, the single person whose life is so sad, A, because they're single and B, because they don't understand the meaning of Christmas. Right. And that like they're, the way they get love and feel deserving of love is because simultaneously they come to see how very important celebrating Christmas actually is. 
And so if you don't celebrate Christmas, it's always like a funny plot to observe because it's like, well, I'm never going to understand the true meaning of Christmas. So <laughs> uh, I guess I can, I'll never get a boyfriend for Christmas. That is actually about a very specific Hallmark movie that I have a joke with my best friend about called A Boyfriend for Christmas. And the, most of the joke is just that the guy in it, his name is Douglas Fertree. <laughs> Great. <laughs> no, it's, an, it's a wonderful movie. I mean, already from that, you can know how, how deeply enjoyable it is to watch. But yeah, and it, I mean, this is very true of the holiday as well, right? Where it's like, I have to, they're, they're, the plot of the holiday is basically, I have to escape Christmas because right. I'm not deserving of love. Right. But not only do they find love in, the, in an attempt, I mean, that's what's so funny too about the normativity of it is that what they're setting out to do is have like either a very Jewish or a very queer Christmas where it's like, I'm going to be alone and just do me and watch movies and hang out. That sounds like a great Christmas yeah. to me. But what the movie is telling us is like, no, no, like we're not going to let you in, like suffer that sad fate. Instead, Jude Law will show up at your home and Jack Black, which we also need to talk about in that casting choice, but that he comes like it's like the men come to their homes mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah they just show up does christmas yeah and and that's the happy ending is like a single woman on christmas is a terrible thing and also not celebrating christmas is a terrible yeah. thing yeah how do you feel about the casting in this movie have we hit it on all points <laughs> Sarah needs to talk about that because I know she has feelings. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I so I mean, obviously, I love this movie, and it and it's um, it, the charm of everyone in it is um, undeniable. Although, I, personally, I do feel like it, I love Cameron Diaz. I think she's a comic genius. I don't think she really shines in this movie, mm -hmm. and I wonder if it's because she knows the role that she is playing is bullshit. I don't know if I can say that. Yeah, right? like, I want to give her credit for being a little bit, um, like she's not more beautiful than Kate Winslet. Mm -hmm. There's no reason she no. gets Jude Law and Kate Winslet gets Jack Black, who is a charming non-Jude Law character. What I mean, and here we are not talking about desire or what you, any of the three of us like or what anybody listening likes. We live in an economy of beauty where certain things are lifted up. Mm -hmm. And in that economy, what Jude Law has is on a completely different currency. And so it's like, and then these two equally gorgeous women are paired off in a way to sort women into the right categories. And by having two men be so dramatically different, it enforces a difference on the appearances of the two women mm -hmm. that wouldn't otherwise, I think, it's certainly not visually apparent. If you looked at them next to them, they're like, oh my God, the two most beautiful women in the world. Oh, but actually Kate Winslet is not. She's, she's the one that men who like curvy women like offstage. Um, and I think it's really intense that so much of their movie, uh, that, that plot line is really about going to Blockbuster and meeting the old movie producer. Mm -hmm. And it's really like she has to go and properly learn from watching movies that she can't aspire to the really hot guy, um, which is interestingly different from uh, Sense and Sensibility, which I just rewatched this morning for the first time in 
I don't know, 20 years, um, where Marianne has learned the wrong lessons from reading, which is that men should be romantic mm -hmm. and thus she should not fall in love with a clearly superior Alan Rickman. Um, so it, the way that the pop culture works as an educational tool in the two texts is fascinatingly um, opposite, I think. But that's well, what you have to say about the casting. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that was beautifully said and I don't want to um, jeopardize your gorgeous sense and sensibility segue, but <laughs> I'm a holiday for a sec. I thought that, the, like, again, in my rewatching, the relationship with the elderly music or elderly film producer guy mm -hmm. is such an interesting plot in there too, because he actually literally says to her at some point, your problem is that you think you're the best friend character yeah. in a movie. And you need to learn to be the leading lady. And I'm like, that's the problem of this movie. It's not the problem of her character. So I actually started to think, I know this is going to be a very controversial thing to say in this space, but I feel like maybe the problem with that movie is that Kate Winslet was cast in that role. But who should, so who, Ariel, do you think should be cast in that role? Um, somebody who has not been rewarded in terms of being cast in a leading lady role be in that role and be told that would actually, I think, be really meaningful. Whereas mm -hmm. when we hear Kate Winslet being told that, we're like, why are you saying that to Kate Winslet, who is clearly right. a, lead, a leading lady in every single room that she, and like, you cannot make her less astonishingly beautiful or charismatic. And, and yeah, exactly, and yeah. And like the moment when Kate Winslet, she's starting to be happy and she flits down the house and she uh, knows all the garden staff by name and the birds are flitting around her head and it's like Snow White, right? Mm -hmm. Like nature loves her and it wants her. Nature and the staff loves her and wants her to find life, um, find love. And yeah. I, mean, like, I, I love that moment so much. I had a friend once I was bird sitting for and the bird came and landed on my shoulder and I was like, oh. <gasps> I'm in a movie now, right? And it like, you know, like twitted at my neck and I was like, I, I, do I have superpowers now? Like the, the nature <laughs> came and like chose me, right? Like, cause that's always the sign in that kind of fairy tale mm -hmm. moment is that the nature, it's not her, nature picks the one that's good. Nature picks the one that's gonna get the story. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, the thing that I also find like really lovable about that movie is so there's um, this argument that gets made about 19th century women's literature that I, I, I'm sure Sarah's familiar with, and Lauren, you might be familiar with too, but um, Susan Harris, the critic, uh, wrote a book a long time ago that was very influential. And she comes up with this idea of the cover plot where it's like, there is an actual kind of subversive plot inside the text, but then the cover plot is how it sort of meets genre expectation mm -hmm. and kind and kind of like is a red herring in terms of our understanding of the movie. And I feel like the actual plot of the holiday, like the cover plot is they both meet men, they fall in love, happy Christmas, we're all together, now we're partnered again, we're no longer like scary single women. But I feel like the actual plot, the subversive plot at the heart is their relationship with each other and the fact that they like have this correspondence, save each other. And then at that final party scene, they're both there together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there were all these little moments where like, I was thinking, I thought of it because of the, the part that you were talking about, Sarah, there are all these little moments where like the alarm comes on. I can't remember what song it is, but Kate Winslet is like, I love you, Amanda. Like, thank you so much for giving me this moment. And the fact that they're in each other's spaces and kind of falling in love with each other's lives, I find very like 
femme romantic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they become friends at the end. They're like at a party together at the end. So I feel, I like to think of the movie as like the love stories are kind of the cover plot, but yeah. the actual story is how these two women who have very different lives, both kind of like learn from each other's mistakes mm-hmm. and the pro like they have incomplete lives and the combination of their lives kind of gives them what they were missing in their own life. Yes. And I actually, that makes me think of like my, the thing I want more from the movie too, is like interaction between the two of them. Like I wish yeah. they were corresponding more. I wish they were on the phone at night or in the morning, you know, like do, having exchanges. I want more of that. Cause I think my, maybe one of my favorite scenes is the one where she's on with Jude Law and Cameron Diaz. And then like the call waiting messes up and blah, blah, blah. Cute scene. Great yeah. scene. More of that. Such a cute because it's like, that's a callback to the classic films that the old producer mm-hmm. guy is doing. That's a classic like slapstick rom-com scene. And I think that is like, in terms of Cameron Diaz, I feel like she's such a good actress. I almost think that what she's doing in that movie is hearkening back to the slapstick rom-coms of like the mid 20th century. And she's being that kind of like frantic rom-com heroine. And it, like they're very cartoonish portrayals, but I feel like, that's part of like the ode to the genre that the movie is doing. Yeah. Yeah. And the movie loves the kind of movie that it is um, mm-hmm. in a way that it's part of why it's so appealing to those of us who find it appealing. Yeah. And also I think it's appealing just because of how egregious it is. So, I mean, I love the cover plot and actual plot distinction. The thing that I don't quite agree with Sharon Harris on is that it's not like, okay, this is just cover, but the real story is this other one. And so the subversive plot is the real one. And I think what's so great about it, like they're both real stories. It's not like, oh, it's really subverting this cover story. Like, no, it's really like, it really is doing this like completely normative work. And it's not, you know, like, and life is complicated and mm-hmm. our narrative pleasures are complicated. So the way that they, like, it does have those stories sit together, not always awkwardly, um, you know, like, I do really think it's amazing that they like line up in the Congo line at the end and they're like, mm. this is the one that comes first, yeah. you know, like, you know, it's just like order is in place, but they are genuinely having fun. And like, I've been in that Congo line where I'm like, yeah, but that's the popular girl. You know, like, it's okay. Right. Like, you know, that's what well, happens. have to be more blonde next time. I know. Yeah. More blonde next time. Yeah. I was um, going to ask you guys what you coveted just in the film. Like if it was a house, if it was, but I, clearly it's the, the coats. But is there anything else that you were like, I want? Law's house. Jude Law's house. Jude yeah. Law's house. Yes. <laughs> Also, Jude Law's whole thing, like, it's not, when you were talking about, like, you know, giving us that Sarah, like, Jude Law is Jude Law, like, can't touch that. It's also his whole plot and whole, his, his endealment in that movie, that it's like, he's like, she's like, you're so hot and awesome, you're definitely dating multiple women, and then no, it turns out to be his daughters who are calling him, because he's such an exceptional father to young girls. (laughs) (laughs) he's like I'm sorry I didn't mean to lie to you I just didn't want to make your trip overly complicated or take up too much space with my complicated Mm -hmm. life when you're going through things yourself and I wanted to be respectful of that but yes you can come into my gorgeous countryside mansion where I've like done crafts and made cozy fairy tents with my beautiful little daughters who adore you 
Like, that's a lot. He's the Keanu Reeves of the film. He is the... Oh, I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. And the way that this movie... But he does have this kind of like tormented mystery about him. So it's like um, it. This is a movie that's in love with the hot, good guy. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I love movies where the hot, exciting guy is the right guy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because often, um, you know, like so many of these stories, including Pride and Prejudice, which I don't sorry not pride and prejudice although also pride and prejudice but i meant sense and sensibility but where it's like oh definitely not hot willoughby who loves the stories you love and is super interested in you and wants to pet your hair like clearly he is terrible and i'm always like no right (laughs) but uh, that's what makes austin so good is that in austin sometimes that guy is terrible but sometimes that guy is actually secretly awesome and it was all a misunderstanding (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I'm just, yes, but definitely not in sense and sensibility. And I like a like fall for the hot guy movie. It's going to be good for you. I I find that really. Yeah. yeah. I want to fall for the nice guy movie, which is why I wanted Jack Black to be nicer because what doesn't seem fair is that Jude Law gets to be the hottest and the nicest. Yeah, for sure. How is that? That, like, I mean, do you want to take your economic analysis to that, Sarah? Because it just seems like a bubble. <laughs> I mean, it's just all like, oh, I don't know. It's really complex. Yeah. <laughs> Truly ideal. I mean, I really envy the coats. Um, I like the daughter's playroom with the big tent. That's, that's like right. a room inside room is really ideal. Uh, like and it was the- so clean, too, if you guys noticed. <laughs> It's all glitter and I mean, just the best clean, like a clutter that doesn't seem dirty is a really ideal situation for me. I'm a big hoarder. Um, But the other thing is the fantasy that a single woman could have that cottage while just writing a new wedding column. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the fantasy of Iris having a successful writing life. And I mean, you know, like her family's rich, so she probably inherited it, but like still, I would like to like write regular small columns about dress details and have a nice cottage. I don't understand if the movie thinks that's a nice cottage. That is another thing that is perplexing to me along with the astonishing beauty. Oh, yeah. Where like Cameron Diaz comes there and she's like, ugh, everything is British. <laughs> <laughs> How does this coffee pot work? So pre- I mean, what I to say is that this is a movie that is, um, very interested in a fantasy of England, but is extremely pro-America. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like brokenness. It's like they drive on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> they don't have the right things. It's ridiculous. But it is extremely snowy at all times. Yeah. And white snow. So it's like hyper-whiteness. So, uh, like it, it's interested in England as the manifestation of the ideal of white wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's like she wanted to go to a Christmas card for Christmas. And then she's upset that it's like an actual place. I see the holiday picking up so much steam as a Christmas movie, too. Like Hannah just went to a screening in Bristol. She was like, oh, yeah, we're, we're playing it in movie theaters here for the holiday season. Um, I feel I've been watching a ton of Hallmark and Hulu yeah. and Netflix, all of all of the Christmas movies lately. And I feel like so many of them are referencing the holiday as well um yeah it's it's wild so i feel like it's really picking up steam just in the past couple years too it's like a classic holiday movie also 
So I want to mention one other thing quickly here, which is the, uh, but it seems like a relevant intertext is the new Little Women, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is wonderful. And to me, the most significant change is that the opening scene is not a Christmas Day scene. Because the Christmas Day as a site, and I was really thinking about it at the time because that came out right around the time when the first season of Dickinson, which is a perfect season of television as far as I'm concerned, it's Louisa Way Mailcup shows up for the Christmas dinner. Yeah. Um, and the way the two, those two things together help display Christmas as a holiday about women's labor. And I mean, from childbearing originally all the way up on through. And so I do think it's really interesting at the holiday, and this goes along with the singleness, is that it's two women who have no work to do yes. still get Christmas. They get the best Christmas of all. There's a really yeah. um, complicated book called My Hollywood by Mona Simpson that is very good and strange in a bunch of different ways. But there's this brutal line in it where one of the women who has a tiny kid says, when I think of Christmas, I think of women alone in cars. <laughs> it's just like, like all the errands, all the lists, yeah. all the jobs, like all the memories dependent on you, right? Um, and so I really think that the way that when Little Women does not start with a women doing work scene, but or, but rather a woman not doing hosting work, but instead doing writing work scene, it's like this is a really fascinating unraveling of this scene, um, of the scene of Christmas Day from its most significant importance in women's lives, typically, like here I'm using women in a loose kind of cultural sense, which is to create the memories through consumerism, which is why it is so important through white capitalism to white capitalism, yes. I would say. Well, I mean, and I say this like literally I'm here in front of my Christmas right? tree with my stocking <laughs> that my grandma's best friend made me. I'm like so full of the Christmas spirit. I love it. But I mean, but like truly, right? Like my mind is full of 17 lists right now of like when I have to put the, the yeast and the dough for mm -hmm. the cinnamon rolls on like Christmas morning. Yeah, I just so. make vodkas. It's easy. Just, just try them. But I think that the, the other intertextual thing about this is they're also both very much, as you've pointed out to me many times, about the pleasures of knitwear. Oh, yeah. Yes, knitwear. About gorgeous female authored interior spaces. Mm -hmm. And so... One of the great, like, amazing things about the New Little Women is it celebrates, this is what a domestic space would look like if women were entirely in charge of creating the domestic space of their fantasies and also, like, got to just be together in a female space for a holiday season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that, like, you know, part of the holiday that is pleasing to us, too, is thinking about what is your fantasy, like, single woman space? Like, what would your house be if it was just your house? I was just going to say, switching gears, uh, favorite reads. What can you recommend to our listeners? Anything at all? Um, I have been enjoying thinking about this question. And I um, have three um, recommendations. Mm -hmm. One is a fantasy kind of novel called Paranisi by Susanna Clark, who, who wrote The Strange Case of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, 
but it's a very slim fantasy novel and i have ambivalent feelings about her for a couple of reasons but it is a as a but i will just recommend it and say it is a really tactile wonderful mystery read with a very close focus and it's very strange and a little hard to get into but then it's really beautiful and also fun to read out loud i really there are a couple of scenes that are just so beautiful solitude scenes that i i really found it compelling and i didn't expect mm -hmm. to so i would recommend that mm -hmm. another thing that i had not read before this year um but i finally did and it was even better than i expected is women race and class by angela davis mm -hmm. so if you have just felt like you knew what that was about um because you know everything about you know how great she is it's still worth reading it I'm sorry I didn't read it earlier, but I'm really glad I read it now because it really matters. And then the third thing that I will plug is a book that's actually coming out in January, but is a perfect companion piece to Mayor of Easttown. It's a novel by a dear friend of mine, I should admit, named Marie Rutkowski, but it's a book called Real Easy. And it's a murder mystery that is about, um, it's set in a strip club in the Chicago suburbs in 1989. Mm -hmm. And it is about a woman who is murdered. And it's also about the woman who is a police detective who is trying to solve the crime. So it actually fits really interestingly with Mayor of Easttown. I think it raises a lot of the same questions about what it means to tell a story about women and the police. Um, and it is told from multiple perspectives and all of them are really amazing. So I really recommend, I mean, I'm friends with the author, but I would, if you liked Mayor of Easttown, I would really recommend it. And I also think it is gonna, it will, it makes an interesting conversation about the ways women handle living in a, a world where women are so at risk. Very nice. So those are my recommendations. Oh, those are great. It's about January 18th and called Real Easy. Okay. <laughs> I have two contemporaries and a 19th century. So in looking back through my Kindle, I did actually do some reading this year, even though at this final end of the semester, it feels like I my brain has been erased. Um, and I remembered that one of my favorite books I read this year was Animal by Lisa Tadeo. So I've recommended it to a couple of people and I feel like you either love it or you mm -hmm. hate it because the character is something that I always want to see in a novel, but so ever rarely happens, which is a first person narrator who is a female anti-hero. Mm -hmm. So she is a terrible person. Um, and the story is a, is basically a revenge plot about how she's going to get back at the very many men who've wronged her. Um, and also do something else. I really, this is a, a book that I really don't want to ruin because it has incredible surprises. And one of them is like how she became this way, like something very awful happened to her, but it's not what you think. Um, but I just think that she, so she wrote three women. I don't know if either of you oh, read yeah. that, Yeah. but that was one of my favorite books of the previous year. And I feel like she just writes like her life is at stake. Like every sentence is so powerful and dire. And I just couldn't put it down. I just, there's something about her writing style that I absolutely love. And I will say a similar thing about um, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which is also another kind of anti-heroine book. It's, I thought it was brilliant. And part of it also is just because I think it's such a different kind of female character and pertinent to what we've been talking about today. I think one of the amazing things about that character is that she's constantly talking about the power that her, her like very white blonde beauty gives her. It's very much a book about that. Like she acknowledges that and talks about what, a, what both a privilege and a bore it is to move through the world 
in that way. Um, and then very quick plug for, I guess I said three, but maybe four. Very quick plug for Mediocre by Ijeoma Luo, which is a book that now I'm going to like teach all the time, not only because it has an incredible chapter about her going to what is the most famous museum in Wyoming. I'm talking about <laughs> the Buffalo Bill uh, History Center for the History of the West. And I teach at the University of Wyoming. And she has this, I mean, the whole book is great, but there's this incredible chapter where she talks about the myth of the cowboy and the actual history of Buffalo mm -hmm. Bill um, that I just think is wonderful for me to be able to teach at an institution where our football team is the Cowboys. Um, but also, um, I just think that she is so smart and clear on what white male privilege is and looks like that it's a joy to read. Um, my 19th century pick is I reread a book that I had read in grad school. This is something I read for work that I, I was going to eventually write something about, but I've always thought of it as like the weirdest 19th century novel. And my rereading of it confirmed that that is true, which is Kate Chopin's other novel, At Fault, mm -hmm. which very few people like read or talk about. It has the most bizarre plot you could possibly imagine, which includes like a very non-morally laden treatment of divorce. So the hero, the love interest guy, is somebody who divorced his alcoholic ex-wife. Interesting. And then he falls in love with somebody else. And she's like, you're, it's, an, it's just an incredible feminist moment. She's like, sounds to me like your ex-wife really had a problem and you abandoned her instead of supporting her and providing the care that you should as a husband. So she's like, you should remarry your ex-wife, not because I have any moral problems with divorce, but because she was having a mental health crisis and you abandoned her. Wow. And then he does that. <laughs> but there are a million other weird things happening in that novel, including somebody who like burns down a forest and then murders his own dog. Like, it's just very, it's very, very strange. And I enjoyed every minute of reading it. And I'm like dying for other people to exist who've read it because all I want to do is be like, why does this happen? But then I, I read something that Kate Chopin wrote about it where she's like, I wanted to write a novel that was so realist that a lot of things happen as in real life that are not connected to anything else. And I was like, okay, that makes a little bit more sense now. And we are back. So I've got to say, after listening to that conversation, I was starting to wonder whether or not I bought a white coat to wear on my wedding because of the holiday because <laughs> I did I wore it for 15 minutes it was unseasonably warm and then I had to take it off and didn't put it mm. on again for the rest of the day and I spent 200 pounds on it. <laughs> well you can always reuse that coat I, I hope. can use it when I go to Surrey yeah you can yeah. have a little glamorous vacay mm -hmm. in Surrey yeah uh, yeah, it's funny because obviously I've said it before, but like, I think this year has tipped me into seeing the holiday 60 times. So I would actually say I'm the most qualified to talk about this film out of anyone on this episode, but mm -hmm. you'll just get a little bit, you'll get a little hint of it. Uh, so yeah, I used to base like all of my early decisions in my 20s on what would Iris do? That was my philosophy. What would Iris do? meant I made some bad choices as well. I definitely dated a couple of Jaspers. And I was wondering today if maybe the coat represented the shift into like this radical, what would Amanda do mentality. But then, <laughs> yeah, just like the whole Iris is less hot. It was just like, nope, 
Still an iris. Still an iris. And like Sam, Sam and Jack will watch the film with me. And then they, like just this week, they were saying like, oh, Kate Winslet's hat is just doing the most work to make her dowdy. They can't get over that beige hat they put her in at the beginning of the film. And even they are picking oh. up on like the hat makes her look like it drains her. It's like, it's not her mm-hmm. color. She's just got it like stuffed on her head. She's like crying on the train with this ugly hat on. She just looks sad. She just looks, I, she like just she's looks given sad. Up. But and that no makes one... sense because she's been in love with Jasper for three years. The three yeah. worst years of her life. The worst Christmases, the worst birthdays. <laughs> so there's that. But I, you know, but I do get it. I did the whole unrequited love thing. Like there's mm-hmm. a reason. There was a reason I was attached to the holiday for a long time. I too had a Blackberry. Mm-hmm. I too worked at the, at the Telegraph. <laughs> I too traveled to America, but I didn't meet I didn't meet a handsome music composer. So I laughed really hard when you guys were talking about um, single people not being allowed to know the true meaning of Christmas and that they have to escape Christmas because when we saw it at the cinema, which by the way was a brilliant experience, it was mm-hmm. so good seeing it at the cinema. What like nearly twenty years after it came out, sixteen years after it came yeah. out. Yeah, was it busy? It was sold out. Oh wow! People were like, one girl behind us did ruin it because she like did a cheer and then people laughed and then she was like, oh, this is my Not crowd. Man. That crowd turned. I turned. I was like, you can have one, but then you've <laughs> got to sit down and be quiet because you're ruining it. But the woman next to me, every time Jasper was on screen, she was like, oh, that git. Oh, I hate him. He's so smug. And just like saying all of these feelings, like it was this cathartic thing. Uh, It was great. I think Jack was the only man in the screen. (laughs) That was good. Um, But we, yeah, we kept saying like, we wanted to recut it into this like horror film called Napkin Head. Or maybe just like make a trailer. Because there are so many shots, like Amanda walking down the lane or like Mm -hmm. the running or just... Like people just standing in doorways, or you know, just. I think a horror remake of the holiday actually makes sense. Like two women switching lives and like buying into the fantasy of each other's lives, but then it all going wrong. Yeah, and you can't escape Christmas. (laughs) It's following (laughs) you. It'd just be funny if they were like, oh, there's fuckboys everywhere. (laughs) We'll never escape them. You know, there is a fan theory or maybe an anti-fan theory that um, there's like a gothic version of this, right? Where Mm. Jude Law and Kate Winslet are like entrapping Cameron Diaz, like a wealthy woman to come over there to marry her, gain access to her money and then kill her. If you've seen a film enough times to have a theory about it, you are a fan. Regardless of whether or not you want to, you know, let me send you back to our Guilty Pleasures episode from last season. (laughs) If you've got a theory about the holiday, you're a fan of that film. And yeah, we can call it Napkin Head. It makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) We can make it. Um, I did want to circle back around to that conversation you were having about casting, because one thing I do know about the holiday is that Jack Black did not want to take the role. Mm. of Miles. He didn't want to play opposite Kate Winslet and he had to be like convinced to do it by Nancy Myers because he didn't he didn't think he was like the right person to play opposite Kate Winslet. So it's interesting mm-hmm. that Jack Black had that like awareness of kind of what she was bringing to the 
the table as an actress. Totally. Um, Oh, that is really interesting. I mean, I just want to be clear. I do think that Jack Black is a super charming guy in general, but I also think that the movie is like relying on a shorthand by wanting you to associate all these characters with their off-screen personas or other roles. So, you know, Cameron's the hot girl. Kate is the sad girl. Jasper is the jerk. Jude is the hot, but like also mysterious, but ultimately really good guy. And Jack is the funny guy. And that shorthand does move the film along, but I don't think it really does does any of the characters any favors or the actors any real favors, right? I guess I just, I have questions. Let me think on this for a minute. (laughs) So the thing about The Holiday, I think it's a very tight film and I actually think it's really well balanced between all the storylines because there's a lot going on in that movie. It's a lot. But I actually would love to see this as like a series that's like remade. Because I would love like six to to eight episodes of this. Mm. Because I think there's so much material, actually, that you could mine from this. 100%. I've got to say, I think The Holiday is Nancy Meyer's best film. I think it's a cult movie. I think it the snowball effect. I'd like to take partial credit for the snowball effect of The Holiday. Mm. Um, You know, I think if you watch a film 60 times, you're putting it out into the... You're manifesting its success, if anything. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I loved, yeah, I loved the Mare's Hair article that Sarah wrote. I mm-hmm. really enjoyed reading that. And I think it's, I've always enjoyed the holiday in a very passive and uncritical way. Mm-hmm. But I'm very open to cri- like viewing what I'm consuming with that lens. I think it's very easy to keep doing it because I have watched it five times a year since I was 19. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of, you know... So to have someone write about it in a way that kind of was pulling stuff out that I've taken for granted or I've overlooked or I just thought it was really refreshing to look at it like that. Would you say that the the holiday is like the last romantic comedy? <laughs> What's the last one? What's the last one from that like So I before don't know. they became before mm. they became bridesmaids? Uh, I'm drawing a blank, although I am sure there were a ton of movies that I missed. I just, um, I feel like the rom-com genre had some rocky years, right? Like there were films that were dominated by like gross out humor, gimmicky plots, or just, you know, two leads that didn't have any chemistry at all, or, you know, zero banter in the script. God, I just miss, I miss banter. I will say one of the other reasons that I love the whole, I'm going to bring everything back to the holiday, right? Nora Ephron is the queen of banter. And this is why I'm sure other people have said it, but Nora Ephron is doing what Jane Austen is doing in Pride and Prejudice Mm -hmm. and in her other books. She's putting couples in conversation with each other and they're falling in love. They're falling in love with each other through talking, through getting to know each other, through Mm -hmm. recognizing the differences and when their interests align or, you know, that's what When Harry Met Sally is about. It's what You've Got Mail is about. Mm-hmm. Even to a certain extent, although they don't meet until the end of the film, in Sleepless in Seattle, it's people having conversations about what they think with other people that tell mm-hmm. us as the reader they're the perfect match. So when they do meet, we've got no doubt that they're gonna right. that they're gonna fit. And although the holiday references Sleepless in Seattle with um, Cameron Diaz's monologue, it's almost it's like. 
Cameron Diaz's monologue at the start of the film when she's talking to her employees references a monologue that Meg Ryan gives in Sleepless in Seattle when she references, oh, they used to say in your 30s you were more likely to be killed by a terrorist than getting married after mm-hmm. the age of 30. Um, and so she's kind of like saying like, look, this I'm continuing it. I'm carrying it on. I'm carrying it on. Mm-hmm. But not quite. And that's right. why Miles and Kate kind of work because they... They're out, they're getting coffee, they're going mm-hmm. for lunch, they're, and we see them talking, and it's because the romance has taken off the table. And with, Jude with Law Cameron and, Diaz and Jude yeah. Law, they keep saying, like, well, sex makes everything complicated. But all of their conversations are around sex and how good at sex she is and how yeah. complicated it is because they've had sex, now they're not going to have sex, and he's already had sex at least twice with another woman who is dead. Like, it's all... right. It's all sex-based. And what we know from Nora Ephron is that if you take sex off the table, mm-hmm. that's where it works. And that's yes. like... Or or sex can be on the table, but it doesn't have to solely revolve around sex the way that it does for Jude and Cameron. So this is actually making me think that the thing that I consumed this year um, that I loved the most was not a book, but rather a rom-com TV series that was created by and stars the comedian Rose Matafeo. And that was called Starstruck and it's on HBO Max and the BBC. Um, And in some ways I think it's like the antithesis to the holiday because it's not using the same sort of shorthand and it's not trying to sell you a fantasy of like wealth and coats and expensive kitchens. Like Rose's character lives in a very realistic London apartment and has multiple jobs to support herself. And the romance itself is about two people, like people of color, I might add, which is something that's missing in a Nancy Myers film. So the romance itself is about two people who occupy different positions within society and are deeply attracted to each other, but just unsure of like how to make things work. And... um that might make the show seem sort of heavy. It's really not. It's very sweet and lighthearted. And I think it works really well because the leads have chemistry. They've got banter and they've got longing. They long for each other persuasion style. And I think that's something that's really, really missing in a lot of rom-coms, right? Ah. Oh. So that's my big recommendation for the year, actually, by the way. <laughs> I feel like we need to... Should we move on? Should we wrap up the holiday chat? Lauren, mm-hmm. can I just say thank you. Thank you for indulging my obsession with the holiday this year. Not only did you make my relatable Kate meme dreams come true, but we had a solid reason to talk about it on script for the first time instead of it just coming up in conversation. <laughs> Which is good. That I think that truly is the Christmas miracle that we all needed, <laughs> that we all wanted, and we all needed. Just all needed. Well, you're you're very welcome. Um, so there is one little last piece of holiday trivia that I don't know if you know. Mm. You might know this, but Kate Winslet apparently took the curtains from Iris's cottage, and those are hanging in her house today. Oh, yeah. I did. I would have taken. I would have taken her. Um, dinner where her blue and white china mm. which is above the fireplace in the kitchen <laughs> which i can see 
Winslet also has the sink from Mildred Pierce. That's her sink. She's like, the taps suck, but I had to have it. And <laughs> also she has the table from All the King's Men. All the King's Men, I have not seen, but apparently that film also stars Jude Law. And what's so special about that table is that her and Jude Law made out on that table, like aggressively Mm. for many, many takes. And then she said, right, taking the table home with me. So speaking of Winslet, but also transitioning to favorite reads, I want to give a shout out to the Sense and Sensibility screenplay and production diary by Emma Thompson as one of my favorite Mm. reads of this year. Um, definitely gave me a new appreciation for the film as well as the novel. And it just like holds up on its own as a really good piece of work. Of course, we did a whole episode on it. So great book. Yeah. Great read. Go back to that one if you want to hear more of our thoughts on that. Um, I also have to say, I feel like I didn't read a ton this year, but I did really get into poetry and I have been reading one to two poems a day. Like keep well, it. That's reading. Lauren. It's reading. Um, I keep it light. I just want the work to, you know, sink in. And I've been rotating between the collected works of Emily Dickinson, Sarah Piat, and Sylvia Plath. And one collection that I actually have read entirely was Birth Chart by Rachel Fader. So Rachel is a friend of the show, and she's uh, talked with us about Mary Shelley on a past episode. She's also got lots of thoughts on Dorothy Wordsworth. I'm sure we're going to have Rachel back very, very soon. Um, She also has this poetry collection called Bad Romanticisms, which I like absolutely adore. And I found myself repeating one of the little poems from that book the other day while I was stuck in traffic. And... um, Hannah, will you just be like the voice inside of my head and read this poem for me? For some reason, I keep wanting to talk about how Jane Eyre was really Dorothy Wordsworth and not that it's any of your business, but Dracula was Walt Whitman. At least one of these things is true. Trust me, I'm a doctor. Um, anyway, I'm just using this platform to sort of bully Rachel into publishing a Bad Romanticisms too, like the sequel. Bad romanticisms, like once more with feeling or just some some nonsense. Rachel, you can you can come up with it. You're better with words. Um, so speaking of poetry and romantics, I'm also going to throw in Young Romantics by Daisy Hay and A Passionate Sisterhood, The Women of the Wordsworth Circle by Kathleen Jones into the recommendations mix. Uh, Those are really great books if you want to learn more about, you know, Percy, Shelley and Byron and Coleridge and Wordsworth and Salvi, all those guys. So, uh, yeah, this year I read a lot of um, like shorter fiction by contemporary women writers. So not short stories, but not like not like a big boy novel, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, something that really struck me about all of the books that I've read, and I think it was an accident, but they were just all about women who are consciously choosing to just totally retreat from society. Mm. I mean, that like seems every apt. single one. <laughs> it seems <Yeah>. timely. <laughs> and it, you know, whether or not it's a lack of acceptance or just a lack of interest in being accepted or whether it's self-preservation and that's yeah it was such a big mood for me in 2021 and so it was just nice to read books 
that kind of reflected that. But not chosen for that reason mm-hmm. either. Just happened. Just, yeah, it just happened. And also I just thought it had me thinking about um, just how much of a contrast that is to the classics that we read, uh, which are almost always about women fighting to be seen, fighting mm-hmm. to be accepted into society, trying to find a place for themselves. And it is interesting that a lot of women's contemporary writing is like, I don't want it. <laughs> I've got I, it and I, I don't want it. <laughs> I need to lay down. <laughs> yeah, just like, yeah. The books are, in no particular order, Convenience Store Women by Sayaka Murata, Indelicacy by Amina Kane, which I noticed uh, in the interview you guys mentioned, my year of rest and relaxation. And I chose Indelicacy because it also had a painting and neon writing. Oh, really? I was really? like, I've got to read it. <laughs> yeah, I just figured it would be like the same. And it was. Mm-hmm. Really recommend Indelicacy. Um, the Collection by Nina Leisure, which is translated from French. And it's about a woman who creates a memory palace to remember all of the penises she's seen. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Very interesting book. And then The Harpy by Megan Hunter, which is about um, the breakdown of a relationship and also an exploration of what harpies are, what they represent, how that's changed over time. Mm -hmm. Really great. And then uh, honourable mentions to Folk by Zoe Gilbert, which is a book that I read in one day. It was so compelling. Um, It's folk stories, but they're not like it's not a collection of traditional folk stories that are reimagined. They are newly imagined folk stories about this community and kind of they go through time and stuff that's mentioned in the first story is playing out in the last story in the in the collection, which is amazing. Um, Julia Sada's picture book, The Queen in the Cave, and uh, which is kind of about a woman, well, a young girl saying, F you society right going back another it cave. works <laughs> yeah uh and then christina a uh, really beautiful edition of christina rossetti's the goblin market illustrated by georgie McCaus- McCausland. i'm gonna say i really yeah. want that um edition that you have oh and then sorry claire o'shaughnessy in love with george Eliot. i think is the order of it's either in love oh, with george Eliot or george Eliot in love i can't remember which way around it goes um but that book was too long. That took me six months to read. Mm-hmm. I but just you, kept. But you loved it. You were savoring it. I did it, love it. I think because you were telling I me was about it bit by bit. Well, with some of these, I'll be honest. Uh, I had to give up on pages. Right? If I was feeling too ill, I was like, I'm just gonna. I can't. Mm-hmm. Can't read this one page for a week. I've just got to move on. So, you know. And I yeah. think I do feel like it's a bit easier to do that with a shorter book. So. If you're feeling ill and you are trying to read and you'll find it, I say just just turn the page. If it ain't going in, just, and you will finish yeah. books. You will finish yeah. them and you will feel fine about yourself. I struggled a lot this year as well um, with books that were not for the show. Um, so I did also read a ton of short stories, which I think a lot of them I, I want to talk about, but I think we could talk about next year. And then poetry as well so that's why i yeah i focused Mm. on the shorter stuff um one book i did forget to add 
that I, again, would love to talk about on the show is Pink and White Tyranny by Harriet Beecher Stowe, because it's mm. it's funny. <laughs> I I mean, I laughed the whole book. It's a like a comedy of manners and it's very different than her other work. And mm. um, yeah, it, it's very discussion worthy, I have to say. Yes. So um, well, we can do that because I really want to do Silas Marner as a read along, mm-hmm. which is. And don't guys don't forget audiobooks count as reading. I read I read Silas Marner three times this year. <laughs> so maybe we should do a George and Harriet sort of mm. moment, like a little read along. Um Pink and White Tyranny isn't terribly long. Um it fly the chapters are so short. So I think that's maybe mm. why I got through it. It'd be like three pages in this chapter. Okay. <laughs> um, Great. <laughs> and I, I remember saying to you, Hannah, after I read it, I was like, oh, I can kind of like get why Harriet and like George were friends now. I feel like mm-hmm. George probably was like, yeah, I enjoy that pink and white tyranny book. <laughs> that's a weird one. So, of course, you all had a lot of recommendations of your own. This is always such a highlight of the year for me because you all have such great taste. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I really like seeing in this thread, because I'm very vain, I guess, I live for validation. Mm. Uh, I just, I really enjoy seeing uh, people that are reading stuff, either that we've covered as a read-along because it it reassures me that we're picking the right books for that, Mm -hmm. or people that are newer to the show who are then like oh i've just done this read along from 2017 Mm -hmm. like i love that so shout out to lauren jay who just read north and south by elizabeth gaskell for the first time this year that was our one of our 2017 read-alongs or the read-along uh she also read um they also read mansfield park which we did a read-along for in 2019 and persuasion which I don't think we've done a read-along for, but obviously it's Austin, so we've talked about it a million times. Mm-hmm. That's a life-changing year of reading, I think. That's like... Yeah, that's, that's some good that's reading. That's a moment in time, reading those three mm-hmm. for the first time. Other read-along recommendations in 2021 include Mary P and Wives and Daughters, which is another Gaskell that we read in 2019. Uh, both Larissa V and Allegra F enjoyed The Blue Castle, which was our read-along from earlier this year. And Louisa on Insta read The Tenant of Wildfell Hall for the first time this year, which we read in 2018. Woo-hoo. So I just, I love that. Very good. I know that um, past guest, uh, Carrie Sinanen, also read Tenant for the first time this year. And she was like talking about it on Facebook a little bit. And she's like, whoa, this book is blowing my mind. I love it. And so yeah. I was like, yeah, you're Team Austin. You would love it. And she's forever the <laughs> Gateway Bronte. <laughs> forever. Other reoccurring classics include Mary P's top recommendation for the year, Lady Oddly Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon, as well as Jamaica Inn by Daphne du Maurier. I mean, come comes up constantly. I haven't read either. All the time. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, the Pursuit of Love by Nancy Mitford, uh, which I did see the adaptation. Oh. Uh, so that that came out this year. So that's probably why that was uh, a top mm-hmm. recommendation this year. And um, oh, my God. Circle of Friends. Circle of Friends. Read this one when I was 17 and it's uh, transformative or it was transformative at 17. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't I haven't read it for a long time. But oh, that movie. Have you seen that movie? I have not seen or read it. 
Hannah, go watch the movie right now. It is going to get you in all the feels. <laughs> we also got a ton of recommendations for historical fiction. So if that's your bag, listen up. Taylor H. recommended The Downstairs Girl by Stacey Lee. Dominic D. enjoyed The Widows of Malabar Hill by Sujata Massey, a historical mystery about a lawyer, a female lawyer in 1920s Bombay, investigating on behalf of cloistered widows. Ooh, that sounds good. Um, Emily J. recommended Edith Oliver's The Love Child because it was, in her words, beautifully written and all the characters really came to life. Adina B. recommended Girly Drinks, A World History of Women and Alcohol. Mm. And Lauren, I hope you, well, (laughs) I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but did think of you when I saw that. I was like, women, history, alcohol. Yeah, I'm I'm in. I I will buy this book. That's your like perfect secret Santa gift for Lauren. Yeah. Is this book. Valentina B. recommended Piranesi by Susanna Clark as did Anna over on Instagram and Joy A, who also read all the Miss Bunkle books. And um, I'm chalking the Bunkle love up to uh, a bonnet's victory because those we've been uh, we've been talking about those books. We should read them on the podcast. They're so good. You sh- have you read them? Nice. Like <laughs> every. Oh, no. my God. So Allegra F. read and loved Emily Dickinson and her gardens on your recommendation, Lauren, saying, I know nothing of flowers and plants, but I loved, loved, loved this book and how it linked Emily's life and poems to a year in her garden. Extremely well-researched and thorough with beautiful pictures and illustrations. The only disappointment was the author's omission of Emily's queerness and love for Susan. Mm -hmm. That took me a bit by surprise. Um... The best book of the year for Allegra, though, was Circe by Madeline Miller, which Lauren J also upvoted. People love that book. We get that recommendation. People love every it. Every year. Yeah. Um, and I will say I do love uh, those garden books. There's also one on Beatrix po- Potter and her garden. They are very focused on the on the horticulture aspect, however. So mm. it's you're you're getting light on the bio, I think. And Rachel P. said that it's been a weird year for reading and that she spent a lot of time revisiting comfort books, including The Secret Garden, which I also read again this year. And I read. Oh. I, well, the audio. I did the audio book. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of audio books when I was just like lying. <laughs> <laughs> which is why I'm counting it as reading, because I spent a lot of time just like, yeah, still can't get through that Erin Menke Frankenstein. But The Secret Garden that I have, Silas Marner, Pride and Prejudice, maybe six times. I don't yeah, a <laughs> lot, just... of, lot of comfort yeah. reading. Rachel P. also recommends Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, which is on my TBR list, along with Avidly Reads Opera by Alison Kinney. Really looking forward to that one since I enjoyed Avidly Reads Guilty Pleasures, which, of course, was written by our guest, Arielle. I am also picking up Kylie Reads Such a Fun Age and Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong, which came highly recommended by Louise C. Um, really glad that she did that because I completely forgot about those books. And then I saw her recommendation and I was like, great. Yes. Putting those on my Amazon cart. Um, I will definitely try to read those very quickly uh, before we tackle our next read-along, which will be Nella Larson's Passing. And we want to discuss that book alongside a few other books, um, maybe 
comedy American style by Jesse Fawcett, which I really love, and The Half Cast by Dinah Mulock Craig, which you can purchase from Broadview Press, who we love very dearly. So yeah, so that's um all the time we have for this week and uh, this year, apparently. Apparently 2021 is almost apparently. over. <laughs> this one got oh. away from us. Um, but we just wanted to say a big, big thank you to all of our guests for being incredible as always. And then, of course, big thank you to our listeners for tuning in and our readers for buying what is hopefully the first of many books. We cannot wait to talk more about women writers, Real Housewives, and Taylor Swift with you all next year. I don't know about you, Lauren, but I'm uh, feeling 2022. You like, you like, I get it. it. I get it. I didn't get it on the page, but now I got it. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's the Taylor Swift. Yeah, I get it. I got it now. So I have to admit one last thing before we go. I've got mixed feelings on next year. Mm. Just a little apprehensive. It's been 2021. It's been rough. Uh, you know, I'm not going to lie. I've got some like half agony, half hope feelings, essentially, like so much so that I was um, thinking about putting that on me as a tattoo. <laughs> and I mentioned that to my mother and she was like, because my mother like, no, <laughs> she's got a lot of thoughts on tattoos. But she was like, put it on a T-shirt for a year. And then it's really you, good advice. If you like it, <laughs> then get it as a tattoo. <laughs> That advice is so good and it's so funny. <laughs> Man, let me, there are nine t-shirts I wish I would have bought in my life. <laughs> so um, I went ahead, I mean, I'm not a designer. I'm not great, but I went ahead and designed a little half agony, half hope sweatshirt on Bonfire. And I was just going to buy it. And I sent a screenshot to Hannah and she was like, yeah, I like that. So um, I will do a campaign. Like, how about that? And so anyone else out there who's just, you know, carrying that mixed bag of emotions into the new year, buy this sweatshirt with we me. We got you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we got you. I will go ahead and put a link uh, up on our Facebook page and Twitter and uh, all that good and Instagram and all that good stuff. So you guys can check it out if you're feeling the way that I'm feeling. And you would like your coworkers to know that because it's on your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hannah, where can people find those links? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for, you got it, Bonnets at Dawn. And you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, wherever you get your usual literary fix.